Gertrude Tompkins Silver ran her hand over the slick aluminum of her plane. It was an October morning in 1944, and she was a Women's Air Force Service Pilot, or WASP, one of the first women ever to fly for the United States. Today, she was scheduled for an intense cross-country trip from Southern California to New Jersey. Before taking off, Gertrude conducted her routine pre-flight inspection. Then she studied the day's weather conditions, her orders, and a map of her route. If she missed a single detail, it could cost her her life. With her preparation complete, she strapped herself in and buckled her seatbelt. Soon she was traveling 400 miles an hour through the clouds. That's where she was happiest, thousands of feet in the air. Gertrude's plane disappeared into the sky. Little did anyone know they'd seen her for the last time. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first and only episode on Gertrude Tompkins Silver. In the 1940s, Gertrude joined an elite group of American female pilots known as the Wasps. On a routine flight in 1944, she vanished. Today, we'll unpack what inspired Gertrude to join the Wasp, how she passed an incredibly brutal training regimen, and why she disappeared. Then, we'll investigate whether an eyewitness saw her after her final takeoff. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. As a little girl, Gertrude Tompkins developed a stutter 
that made it difficult to communicate. Her father also dealt with a stutter. He vowed to do everything in his power to treat Gertrude's speech impediment, bringing in one specialist after another. They analyzed her for nervous disorders and eventually turned to methods that were, well, unconventional. One doctor tried to cure Gertrude's stutter by slapping her. None of the remedies worked. Instead, the constant attention made her more self-conscious. She didn't speak as often in school. Sometimes she pretended to be sick so she could stay home and avoid her classmates. In her 20s, Gertrude finally left school behind. She traveled around the world on her wealthy family's money, visiting places like Europe, Africa, Turkey, and New Zealand. Her travels ended in 1939, when her father's business started struggling. 28-year-old Gertrude returned to the East Coast to work for his company and help make ends meet. Even though she loved traveling, she didn't mind settling down. She enjoyed decorating her apartment in Greenwich Village, where she may have listened to the radio about events happening overseas. A dictator named Adolf Hitler had risen to power in Germany, and war had broken out. While the United States officials debated whether to intervene, European nations were busy defending themselves. Gertrude listened to reports from London as Hitler blitzed the British capital. All that stood in his way was the British Royal Air Force, or RAF. The reporters described tales of heroism in the London skies. Gertrude may have felt inspired to help the war effort. But there weren't many opportunities for women in the military, at least not at the start of the war. In the winter of 1940, Gertrude met an American pilot who volunteered to fly for the RAF. Based on conversations with her family, Gertrude's biographer, James W. Ure, believes she was going out with a man named Stanley Michael Kolondorsky, Mike for short, but we'll never know for sure if this was him. In general, there's relatively little information about Gertrude or any of the wasps and other women who served during World War II. Despite their dedication, the WASPs weren't publicly recognized for their service until 1977, when President Jimmy Carter signed a law granting them military veteran status. Even yours stumbled upon Gertrude by accident. He came across her story while researching another project. The more he learned about her, the more he admired her, so much so that he decided to write a book much of what we know about Gertrude comes from the testimony and records you're gathered. His book is called Seized by the Sun. According to the book, Gertrude was enamored with her boyfriend's courage. For a time, she and Mike were utterly inseparable. And while Mike was off duty in the United States, he rented an airplane. He may have taken Gertrude for rides. Their relationship blossomed, and quickly, thanks to the raging war. At any moment, he'd be called to return to Jeopardy in England. Perhaps the young lovebirds felt like they didn't have any time to waste. Sure enough, Mike soon received orders to return. With tears in her eyes, Gertrude said goodbye. She didn't know if she'd ever see him again. Afterward, one of her sisters noticed a change in Gertrude. 
She'd gained confidence, fallen in love, and discovered a new passion, airplanes. She even signed up for flying lessons. She wanted to become a pilot like Mike. While she learned to operate a plane, she wrote letters to her lover. In turn, he shared news of his experiences in Britain. Then, in May 1941, the letters stopped. Gertrude learned Mike had been shot down by the Germans. After they found his body in the sea, he was declared killed in action. Gertrude was inconsolable. For two weeks, she stayed home and wept. She'd finally found someone who made her feel less alone. And now, he was gone. To distract herself from her grief, or maybe to feel closer to Mike, Gertrude spent more time on her lessons. She got into the air as much as possible. It was one of the only places where she felt complete and utter control. Thousands of feet above the ground, she could forget about her tragedy and the war in Europe. But Gertrude wouldn't be able to ignore the conflict much longer. On December 7, 1941, she turned on the radio again. Broadcasters were describing the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. The next day, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt asked Congress to declare war on Japan. Three days after that, the United States did the same to Japan's ally, Germany. War fervor spread across the United States. Young men volunteered in droves. Those who couldn't fight contributed in other ways. Factories manufactured metals and other goods for the military. Civilians began rationing food and other valuable commodities. Despite overwhelming support for the war, the military faced a major crisis. A strong air force was essential to victory. The London Blitz had been fought entirely in the skies, but the U.S. suffered a pilot shortage. Luckily, a female pilot named Jacqueline Cochran had an idea. Cochran wanted to train thousands of women to steer domestic military flights so that more men could be sent into combat. She submitted her proposal to the head of the Army Air Forces, known today as the United States Air Force. He approved two squadrons of women pilots, which would eventually be merged into a unit called the Women's Air Force Service Pilots, or as it was known then, the WASPs. In the fall of 1942, the military invited women to apply for the program. As soon as Gertrude heard about the opportunity, she was eager to join. She wasn't alone. 25,000 other women also submitted applications. For many, the WASPs meant rebellion, glory, and breaking down old barriers. History was being made, and they wanted to be a part of it. To make the first cut, candidates needed a clean background, a pilot's license, and 35 hours of flight time. From there, they faced a rigorous interview process with Cochrane or one of her assistants. Successful candidates moved on to a physical examination. According to Gertrude's biographer, some of the women cheated on their vision tests, or they begged their doctors to lie about their height so they could meet the minimum requirements. Still, by the end of the interview process, the 25,000 applicants had been whittled down to just over 1,000 recruits. 
Gertrude was one of them. Elated, she packed her bags and bought a ticket to Central Texas. Soon, she and hundreds of other women arrived at the WASP's base of operations, the 318th Army Air Force's Flying Training Detachment. The hopefuls wore skirts, high heels, fur coats, expensive sunglasses, and tall, intricate hairdos. Some brought tennis rackets, instruments, and golf clubs, like they were on vacation. None knew what was in store. They got a taste of their new lives shortly after arrival. A tough-looking officer ordered Gertrude and her fellow recruits to fall into ranks. He told them many were going to screw up and be sent home. Half of them wouldn't make the cut. A sober silence fell over the class. Gertrude was in for the challenge of her life. Coming up, the rigors of training. Add a berry blast-off for your day with the new Berry Pebbles. A berry twist on a classic breakfast. Perfect for giving those growing minds a blast of creativity. <laughs> with a new berry way to pebbles. Yabba dabba do you with berry pebbles. Head to postpebblescereal.com to learn more. Yabba dabba do and the Flintstones and all related characters and elements. Copyright and trademark Hanna-Barbera. Introducing Batiste's wet-activated and touch-activated dry shampoo. With breakthrough technology that absorbs oil and releases bursts of fragrance whenever you sweat or touch your hair for up to 24 hours, it's the ultimate hair care for girls on the go. Try the newest dry shampoo that's activated by you. Batiste, the future of hair care is here. Buy Batiste dry shampoo online or in store at your nearest retailer. Now back to the story. In September 1942, the military approved two squadrons of women pilots, which would eventually be merged into a unit known as the WASPs. Out of 25,000 applicants, only around 1,000 were admitted to basic training in Texas. One of them was Gertrude Tompkins. Soon after their arrival, the women were relieved of needless personal belongings like golf clubs, tennis rackets, and musical instruments. Anything inessential was shipped back to their homes. Next, the new recruits underwent a physical inspection. They received vaccinations, had their fingerprints taken, and performed exercises for flight doctors. After that, the officers directed the women to their bunks, where they learned how to fold sheets to Air Force standards. Lights out was 10 p.m., and there was absolutely no talking aloud. The next day, training began. The officers divided Gertrude's class in two. Half the recruits took lessons in the morning, called ground school. The other half had flight time with an instructor. Then, in the afternoon, they flipped. Everyone in the program, including Gertrude, had piloting experience. But the WASP curriculum was more intensive than anything she'd ever encountered. Each day, she attended classes about navigation, communication, plane engineering, weather conditions, and protocol for every possible situation. When Gertrude and the other women weren't in class or in the air, they were either studying or exercising. For some wasps, the regimen proved too difficult. 
many left the program or, in military terms, washed out. Other wasps lost their lives in tragic accidents. Some veered off course and collided with obstacles. Others misjudged their landing. Still, the greatest threat was often the new planes themselves, which frequently malfunctioned during flights. As well-trained as the pilots were, there was always a chance that any takeoff could be their last. It was extremely important to triple-check their craft before embarking on a trip. There was another obstacle, one the trainees couldn't do anything about. The wasps faced prejudice from many of their male instructors. Several believed women weren't strong enough to handle military aircraft. Misogyny was everywhere. Before any wasp could fly solo, they needed to co-pilot several flights with an instructor, like driver's education, except in a plane. And while the women could use the aircraft's control stick, the instructor, who was usually male, had his own that overrode the wasps. According to accounts of former wasps in Seized by the Sun, Frustrated co-pilots would painfully ram the mechanism into the recruit's knees over and over. One woman was bruised so badly, her knees turned black and blue. This brutal practice was known as stick beating. Some instructors drank, berated the women, and were just plain incompetent. On occasion, the wasps even discovered their planes had been tampered with. Some of the men's fear of women was so intense, they resorted to sabotage. Even without the tampering, flight was dangerous on its own. A former wasp told Gertrude's biographer that the recruiters had been warned by one of their teachers, the plane won't kill you, but the weather will. So Gertrude and the other wasps devoted themselves to their studies. They learned all there was to know about fog, thunderstorms, and turbulence. Gertrude took to the training like a bird to the sky. She passed most everything with flying colors. The only subject that gave her trouble was military law, but she studied extra to make a passing grade. The last thing she wanted was to fail out of the wasps before she had the chance to fly solo. And after weeks of soaring with a co-pilot, she finally got to take a flight alone. Eventually, Gertrude was flying cross-country and performing aerobatic stunts like spins and rolls. She knew when she got into more advanced training, she'd need to coordinate with others on the ground via the radio. But Gertrude's stutter had never left her. With recruits dropping out left and right, she feared her speech impediment would give her instructors an excuse to fail her. For weeks leading up to the first radio flight, Gertrude repeatedly rehearsed her protocols. She had finally found her calling, and now she was committed to seeing it through. Finally, the day came for Gertrude to put all her preparation to the test. She sat in the cockpit, took a deep breath, and began her pre-flight check. She radioed in for takeoff, only stuttering a few times. They gave her the all-clear, and she was in the air. It was her first time ever using the radio. And even though she'd stumbled over a few words, her instructors gave her a passing grade. 
As her skills improved, the program gave her access to aircraft that weren't yet available to the public. It was up to Gertrude and her fellow wasps to work out the kinks. She occasionally struggled with the new models, but loved these tests. In one instance, she was ordered to fly the AT-6, a prototype with a real kick to it. The controls were sensitive. As Gertrude pulled back the control stick, the plane shot off the ground. Seconds later, Gertrude was alone amongst the clouds with just the sun above her. She cracked open the cockpit, letting a sliver of wind blow across her face. The only sounds were the gusts of air and the hum of the engine. She closed her eyes and let the AT-6 float. She felt like Mike was right there beside her. For the rest of training, Gertrude occasionally had trouble with the new aircraft, but always managed to complete her routes. Despite all the dangers, the misogyny, and the other perils of the program, Gertrude made it to graduation, along with just half of her class. During the November 19, 1943 ceremony, they marched together in uniform and sang their class song. They were officially members of the Wasps. Gertrude and her classmates were already American heroes. They broke down the barriers that kept women from military service. But she and the others would go even further than that. For the remainder of the war, their job would be to risk their lives in the sky. They'd test dangerous new models of airplanes, transport aircraft across the country, and prepare American fighter planes for combat. Gertrude's first assignment was in Texas, where she had to test another AT-6, the same aircraft she'd previously flown and imagined Mike sitting beside her on. A month later, the Air Force transferred her to Dallas for pursuit school, where she'd try out fighter planes to make sure they were safe for combat. Gertrude was one of only four women chosen for the program. It was so selective, it had a special, familiar moniker, Top Gun. One of her first assignments was to test a new fighter plane called the P-51D Mustang. Its aluminum siding shined, and it could travel over 400 miles per hour. When Gertrude first laid eyes on the plane, it was like love at first sight. The Mustang was everything a pilot could want. Quick, easy to steer, and elegant. On the first day of tests, Gertrude settled into the cockpit and ran her fingers over the controls. She went through her pre-flight check and took off. Up in the air, she got a handle on the Mustang by flying level. But once she was out of view of the base, she had a little more fun. She rolled through the air, spinning and torquing as fast as she could. Gertrude giggled as she climbed high in the sky, then spun into a frenzied drop. She glided across the Gulf of Mexico with the machine under her complete control. When Gertrude returned from her hour-long flight, she couldn't stop gushing about the Mustang to one of her fellow pilots. But mid-conversation, he stopped her. With a stunned look on his face, he told Gertrude her stutter was gone. Flying had given her a sense of confidence, 
a purpose bigger than herself. She felt like a new person. A few months later, Gertrude transferred to a new branch. Now she transported planes back and forth across the country to eventually be shipped overseas to the front line. In her new role, she often soared alone for hours at a time. Unfortunately, life as a wasp couldn't go on forever. By 1944, the United States had more male pilots than planes. Enlisted men demanded the wasps' positions. They feared if they didn't get a job flying, they'd be sent to the front lines as infantrymen. Gertrude realized her time in the program was nearing its end, and she'd have to start thinking about life after the war. Her father insisted she accept a marriage proposal from a man named Henry Silver. Henry had been in her life for years. He lived nearby Gertrude in New York, worked for her father, and was known to be a charming guy. But he was also a little older than Gertrude, and not someone she seemed particularly attracted to. Yet, after resisting her father's wishes for some time, she ultimately gave in. In September 1944, she married Henry and agreed to help him raise his young niece, whose father wasn't in the picture and whose mother passed away during childbirth. After her wedding ceremony, she returned to the Wasps and received the news she'd feared. The program would be disbanded soon. Life as Gertrude knew it would come to an end. A few weeks later, Gertrude received orders to transport a new P-51D Mustang airplane from Los Angeles to Newark, New Jersey. As she performed her pre-flight check, she realized there was an issue with the cockpit canopy. It wasn't shutting all the way. She reported the issue over the radio and a technician hurried over. The repairs took so long, the supervisors informed Gertrude she'd have to fly to Palm Springs first and stay the night there. That meant the first leg of her trip was under 100 miles. Then she would resume her journey to Newark the next day. Gertrude was eager to make the whole trip, but orders were orders. She got the okay to take off and hit the throttle. The P-51 lifted into the air and then into the fog. As near as we can tell, Gertrude wasn't required to notify the base when she'd landed, and they were expecting her to make an overnight stop on her way to New Jersey. So days passed without word, but it seems no one found that strange. Then one of Gertrude's colleagues realized she hadn't sent a required overnight telegram from her flight. Military officials called bases in L.A. and Palm Springs, but they didn't know Gertrude's whereabouts. It was a chaotic time for pilots, with no individual flight plans. She wasn't stationed anywhere nearby like New Mexico or Arizona, and she'd never made it to New Jersey. Four days after she took off, Gertrude Tompkins Silver was declared missing. Coming up, the search for Gertrude. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. 
Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Now, back to the story. On October 26, 1944, Gertrude Tompkins Silver took off from Los Angeles in a P-51 Mustang. She was headed for Palm Springs, but she never made it there. Four days later, officials declared Gertrude missing. The Air Force scrambled to track her down. They scanned the mountains outside of Los Angeles, but found nothing. In the Pacific Ocean and Santa Monica Bay, boats swept the waters for her aircraft. Ultimately, there was no indication Gertrude was ever there. But her fellow wasps wouldn't give up. One supposedly rented a plane on her own and traced Gertrude's route back and forth for hours on end to no avail. Days stretched into weeks. 56 aircraft went out in search of her, totaling over 1,000 hours of flight time. On November 18, 1944, Air Force officials made the difficult choice to call off the rescue teams. A few days later, they told her parents that Gertrude was presumed dead. Her personal items were returned to her husband and parents, and they were awarded a certificate of service and Gertrude's service pin. Officials also informed them a plaque would be erected. It would commemorate all the wasps who lost their lives serving the United States. Shortly thereafter, the wasps were officially disbanded. The women who flew the most dangerous prototypes in the country were sent home. However, they didn't receive the hero's treatment they deserved. At the time, their program wasn't officially considered a part of the Air Force or the American military. Instead, the government considered them civil servants. As a result, they were paid less. They didn't receive the same insurance payouts. And the female pilots who lost their lives weren't given the same respect as their male counterparts. There were no military escorts at their funerals or American flags draped across their caskets. Their families didn't receive a Gold Star Medal, the honor awarded to those who've lost someone in a war. It was almost as if Gertrude and the Wasps' involvement in World War II was completely ignored. So when Gertrude went missing, her friends and family may have felt ignored and disrespected. A stinging wound on top of the lack of answers about what happened on her last flight. 
For decades, Gertrude's story was passed down from generation to generation, turning into a family legend. In 1997, Gertrude's surviving family members stumbled across a book on Southern Californian aviation crashes, aircraft wrecks in the mountains and deserts of California. It was dedicated to Gertrude. They called the author Pat Maka. He was a retired history teacher and expert on airplane crashes. He'd studied hundreds of incidents. While he hadn't solved Gertrude's case, he was familiar with what happened on October 26th. During a phone call with Gertrude's family, he said he even had a hypothesis. He believed the P-51 Mustang was to blame. It was a new model, and Gertrude may not have been familiar with its quirks. The fuel tank was right behind the cockpit, which changed the aircraft's center of gravity. And of course, Gertrude had issues with her canopy on takeoff. Maybe when she was airborne, those problems distracted her from the controls. Then, as she flew into the fog and setting sun, she might have become disoriented. Perhaps she tried to climb out of the haze, but the plane stalled out. Maka speculated Gertrude nosedived into the Pacific Ocean just minutes after takeoff. In his opinion, if her plane was out there, they could find it on the ocean floor. So Maka set out with search teams. They scoured the waters using sonar and divers. Year after year, they looked, only to come up empty-handed. Then, in the early 2000s, a man named Frank Jacobs came forward with a story that changed everything. On the day of Gertrude's last flight, Jacobs was 12 years old and fishing on a pier in Manhattan Beach, California. He was just under four miles from Gertrude's runway. While he waited for the halibut to bite, a strange object in the air caught his eye. A fighter plane climbed higher and higher. Jacobs watched it completely mesmerized. But then, the aircraft dove. Its engine sputtered as it plummeted toward the water. The plane tried to level off, but the angle was too steep. As it neared the surface, Jacobs watched it disappear into the fog. In his heart, the 12-year-old boy felt like he'd just watched someone's death. He remembered two nearby adults muttering something about a P-51 Mustang, the exact type of plane Gertrude was flying. Now, as a much older man, Jacobs came forward after hearing about Maka's search. His account helped the expert identify the exact location where Gertrude may have crashed. Ironically, when they searched the region, they found another plane, a T-33 Shooting Star jet trainer, which had been missing since 1950. However, there was no sign of Gertrude or the P-51. It's possible Jacobs misremembered what he saw. After all, he was trying to remember an incident from over 50 years earlier. Perhaps he got some details wrong. Without any actual wreckage, we can only speculate on how Gertrude's final flight went down. In his book, Seized by the Sun, author James W. Ewer explains that some people who knew Gertrude believed her new marriage may have been unfulfilling. 
Flying as a wasp gave her a sense of purpose, and with that being taken away from her, she'd have to return to civilian life. Perhaps this caused her to intentionally crash the plane and avoid her future. However, there's no evidence that this was the case. As we said before, we don't know exactly how Gertrude felt about her new husband. It doesn't look like she invited many wasps to her wedding or even told many people about it. But there's absolutely no evidence she purposely crashed her aircraft or tried to run away. Perhaps Gertrude's P-51 could have been the target of sabotage. Throughout the WASP program, there were multiple reports of male servicemen vandalizing female pilots' planes. Women found grass or sugar in their fuel tanks and their tires slashed. The WASPs routinely double-checked their aircraft before takeoff, but it's possible Gertrude missed something. But we can't know for sure if she was a target until her aircraft is found and inspected. For now, she and her plane are simply lost. However, like the rest of the WASPs, she isn't forgotten. In 1977, Congress finally granted the pilots veteran status with all of the benefits that marker entails. Then in 2010, President Obama gathered around 200 surviving WASPs and the families of those who'd lost their lives in service. Gertrude's family was there as the president posthumously awarded her the Congressional Gold Medal. As her name was read, a rose was placed on a pedestal. When the ceremony concluded, Air Force jets flew overhead in formation, with a spot missing for those who'd fallen in service. Perhaps someday we'll know what happened to Gertrude in October 1944. But until then, she'll be remembered how she was in life, as a fantastic pilot and an American hero. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode. For more information on Gertrude Tompkins Silver, amongst the many sources we used, we found James W. Yor's book, Seized by the Sun, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, Never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ali Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Alex Bernard, edited by Ben Hanani and Angela Jorgensen, fact-checked by Claire Cronin, researched by Chelsea Wood, recorded by Juan Borda, produced by Bruce Katovich, and sound designed by Michael Motion. Our hosts are Richard Rossner and me, Molly Brandenburg. Mm-hmm.